Hello, and welcome to the Letters to My Daughters devotional podcast. I'm Reverend Camille Henderson-Edwards, Director of Economic Health and Gender Justice here at the General Board of Church and Society of the United Methodist Church. And this is your weekly guide to developing a spiritual practice at the intersection of faith and advocacy. Let's get started. And so it is. We have come to the end, almost. You all, we have made it to module five, the final module of letters to my daughters. And as I expressed in the virtual session, you know, when we were preparing and envisioning what this would look like, we had no idea that it would become what it has become, uh, that it would be this digital space for so many people from literally all around the world would gather uh, on uh, this collective focus of exploring what the church might be able to do uh, differently uh, or in a, a new way, a more innovative way in terms of addressing uh, the social conditions of women, girls, and femmes, and specifically for this iteration of Letters to My Daughters, uh, looking at uh, the Black maternal health crisis. I am so grateful that we have uh, spent the past five months coming together to learn more, to hear of the stories of women and girls uh, for whom this issue affects. Uh, and we have gone through the process of asking questions that have caused us to live out our faiths in a different way. Uh, and I am grateful uh, that you all have journeyed uh, with me for this first iteration. And so the last module, module five, uh, I share in the virtual session that I have entitled this, I Leave You Stories Untold, um, playing off of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune in her last will and testament, she had this cadence, this rhythm of uh, the things that she would leave the generations that came after her. Um, and I was inspired by that. Uh, and so also throughout the course of Letters to My Daughters, I've shared that uh, one of my biggest takeaways uh, is that the power of story, and I know we hear a lot about, you know, narrative and storytelling and, you know, all, you know, all of what that entails in terms of being able to advocate and how it contributes to social justice advocacy. But I really saw on uh, a deep level how much uh, more we must do in shifting culture such that we might be able to tell our stories um, because it is in the telling of stories uh, that the generations who come after us are made aware of uh, uh, current conditions and how to either make them better or to avoid them. Um, and so that has been my takeaway. I'm curious to know what your takeaway uh, has been after following you know, the modules within this program, um, but that's definitely mine. And so I wanted to entitle this module, I Leave You Stories Untold, uh, because there is work to do even after this program. Um, and I am identifying part of that work in, as curating spaces for those untold stories 
uh, to be told. And so I'm holding that with me, that there are still stories that have not been told, recognizing that there probably will be stories that will never be told. Uh, But the charge that is before me, that I hope is before you all as well, is that we have to be about the business of curating spaces wherein people might tell their stories. And so to that end, uh, I have decided to do at least this last module, these last few weeks of the podcast a little differently. Uh, I would like to focus on storytelling and sharing stories. Um, I am so honored. I'm so excited. One of my good friends and co-workers here at Church and Society, Amy Hong, uh, joined me in discussion, telling a little bit about her story. uh, And we together sort of reflected on some of our observations and hopes and dreams uh, for the work that is to uh, begin even beyond this point. Um, We are also in the season of Advent. And so we are having this conversation uh, within this framework of Advent as we are reflecting on these tenets of hope, peace, love, uh, and joy. Uh, and so I hope that you will enjoy. Uh, it won't follow similar formats as we've done before, uh, but rather I would just like to invite you in uh, the conversation that we have been having in terms of uh, our personal stories uh, and then also um, our hope and dream uh, and prayer uh, for the work and for the people, for the women to come uh, to join us in this space. So without further ado, here is the conversation that I had with my colleague, Amy Hong. Amy. Yes. uh, One, thank you for uh, joining Letters to My Daughters in this form of uh, the devotional podcast. We have a podcast now. To get started, can you let the people know Introduce yourself to the people, let them know who you are, and if you would do so using uh, the framework that we use of introducing yourself by way of your maternal lineage. Who are you the daughter, the granddaughter, the great-granddaughter of, if you so choose? Yeah, so my name is Amy Nsan, um Tang or Hong, um, daughter of Grace. Sanho No or Kang. So many last names changes in here. And the granddaughter of Young Kang or Young Kim. Um, and um, yeah, just really honored that I can say their names and be part of their line. Yeah. I wonder if there are, when you think about like your work in justice, uh, you wait a minute. We didn't even say that. Could could you also share um, the role that you play here at Church and Society and what it is that you do? Yeah. So I serve as the senior executive director of education and engagement at Church and Society. So I have the opportunity to provide educational offerings to um, all. United Methodists and also non-United Methodists on issues of justice and help them to move from educating to advocating. Mm. And so I'm wondering in the work that you do now to my (laughs) previous question, Mm. 
Do you see elements when you think of those women, right, who have nurtured and raised you, do you see elements of their uh, nurturing in the work that you do or do they inform the work that you do in any way? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was thinking about, yeah, so, you know, I, thinking back on my mother and my grandmother, you know, I, I also realized that there's kind of this strength in them that I hope that I've been able to kind of live into um, in face of um, adversity, especially when I think about my grandmother and, you know, she, and I don't know how she did this, but um, when she, you know, like young, my dad was only like three years old at the time. And she and my grandfather basically picked up the entire family and migrated from the northern part of Korea to the southern part of Korea and then left her family behind, left everything behind um, and never saw them again because of the Korean War. Um, and so I think about her resiliency and and, and kind of like losing everything um, and having to start again. Um, and then and, you know, I think about my mom too, you know, she came to the U.S. when she was young too. And I think I was only five at that time um, and having to kind of, like, you know, leave what she knew behind and having to start all over again. And I think in both of their stories, like in their life stories, that there are things that, that really kind of resonates with a lot of the issues that we work on, you know, um, you know, we work on the issues of like migration and diaspora and poverty, right? Um, and all of those things. And and I, I often think about them um, when I do the work. Um, yeah, so in that way, they inspire me. Yeah, I'm also curious about uh, their experiences of faith, of... Um, yeah, what you gleaned from their experience of faith? Like, how would you describe it? And what did it mean to you? Yeah, so, you know, my my mom, she is like a prayer warrior. I mean, mm -hmm. like, in a sense of I, you know, growing up, my image, my memory of, you know, like, being at home and stuff um, is seeing my mom hunched over praying um, when I'm about to go to bed and mm -hmm. then waking up in the morning and seeing her in the same position, really <laughs> praying mm -hmm. again, you know? Um, and if not that, the, you know, she's, you know, at church for uh, early morning service um, at the Korean church that they're part of provides every day. And she starts off each day going to church at like five o'clock in the morning um, just to pray and then going to work. Um, and so, you know, like my mom has always been this strong kind of, you know, you know, I would share with her some of the stresses in my life and her response is, okay, you just have to pray more. And that was it. That was the answer. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that still is like, you know, I, I was talking with her yesterday and she's like, well, just pray about it. Mm -hmm. And it'll be, you know. Um, and so that's, you know, she's, she's always been, um, an example for me in that way. 
my grandmother, her faith tradition started a little bit later. Um, okay. Yeah. And so she grew up in a very kind of Confucian home. Um, and it was only when she moved to the U.S. when after she retired, like after my grandfather retired and they moved here. Um, and so it was like in her late 70s, early 70s, I guess. Early. No, no, no. 60s. My bad in her 60s when they moved to the US. And then that's when she started to attend church and 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 started to believe and um and had that conversion experience. Um and it, you know, she led a very quiet kind of faith life. Um but I think it was, you know, towards the end of her life that, you know, she, you know, didn't have much energy. She couldn't really get out of bed. But she had her Bible next to her and she would always just like look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would sing song, like hymns and stuff. And that was her kind of clinging to um, what brought her comfort. Um, and so yeah, I remember when, um, you know, when they buried her, they, you know, they put her Bible in her casket, you know, because um, it was that important for her. And so, yeah, I think, and I think both of them and just, it's weird. It's it's um. I feel like I am where I am because of all of their prayers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, same, right? Just to have people who are praying on your behalf, right, in anticipation of the journey that you will take, and who have yeah. seen the things that you have not yet seen or do not yet know. Prayer as as an act of love. Yeah. Yeah. So then for the last module for letters to my daughters, right. We're taught. So I have entitled this module. I leave you stories untold, um, primarily playing off of, um, I was inspired by Dr. Mary, uh, McLeod Bethune, who in her last will and Testament, right. Had this sort of cadence and rhythm of the things that she is leaving the generations uh, that will come after her. And one of the things that I think that I'm learning uh, throughout the course of Letters to My Daughters is that I think one of possibly the strongest ways that we could um resist or fight against, right? We've been talking about maternal health um, and how it is manifested in present day, right? How it impacts the people that it impacts. And I'm really starting to see the importance of storytelling, right? And telling stories, telling experiences such that the people who are coming after us are able to know how this thing manifests in in different ways. And so that's what I want to use for, uh, that's what I'd like to do in whatever way that we're comfortable and whatever way that you're comfortable for this last module to tell your story. Uh, When this podcast comes out, we will also be within this context of Advent, right? And so we are waiting, you know, retelling the story of the birth of Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I want to talk about, uh, your personal story, and then we'll also talk about, uh, some of the hopes and desires that we have for our our sisters and mothers and aunties and all those things that are on the road. So to start, 
could you, to the extent that you feel comfortable, right, can you share with us your maternal health story or journey um, or what you observed from those women that you have named? Yeah, so I have two children, um, one that will be turning 10 in like a week, which is crazy, um, and an eight-year-old. Um, and when I was pregnant with my first, well, actually, let me go back a little bit. Um, a few years before that, um, I went to um, like an Eastern medicine doctor mm -hmm. um, and he checked my pulse. And the first thing he said to me was, um, you're going to have um, issues getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I remember, no, I've never heard that before from any of my doctors before. And so that put me on this like roller coaster of emotions. Um, and it was even before I, you know, was married. I, you know, like it, it, before any of that. And so mm -hmm. I remember that that was always in the back of my head that it might not happen or it might be really difficult or something could happen, you know. Um, and then even after I got pregnant and even with the second pregnancy too, I always had this fear in my head that what he said was going to be true, that something was going to go wrong. Um, so I, I got pregnant with my first um, and we didn't really have um, issues getting pregnant, um, but the fear was still always there. Um, and, and I was, you know, older too. And so, you know, they kind of categorized me as like the geriatric pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so I had all these extra tests and everything. Um, and they say that geriatric, right? That the age range of when they give that title is, is that, was it 35 at the time? 35, yeah. 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 So, you know, extra tests and things like that. And then I remember, you know, um, I mean, it was a really bad pregnancy for me in that sense that I was throwing up for the first like 16 weeks of pregnancy. Um, everyone kept on telling me like, oh, pass after the 12th. And I was like, nope, it's a lie. And people kept on saying that it's morning sickness. And I was like, no, it's 24 hours a day sickness. Like, you know, I was, I'll be out for a walk and I'll calculate where the trash can was because I was afraid I was going to throw up. It was constant just vomiting and feeling nauseous all the time um and you know no one really kind of like told me how bad that was going to be and I wasn't really expecting it um to be the case so that was a real kind of struggle and I remember you know a bunch of my friends would be you know taking these walks with me um and witnessing me throwing up and they'll make like you know comments like you're like walking birth control it's so hard you know and and I was like, I'm sorry. Um, and they were really sweet. Um, but it, I remember just feeling that it was really difficult. Um, we had our first genetic test and the doctor said that uh, Oliver was kind of on the border of, of, I can't recall exactly what it was, but he was really concerned. Um, or she was really concerned. And uh, they asked if we wanted to do another test that would have been a lot more invasive that was actually going into the, getting the um, the Amniotic. fluid. Yeah. 
And, you know, we, you know, you know, JP and I prayed about it and we talked about it a lot. And we were just a little concerned about the fact that it was going to be that much more invasive. Um, and at the end of it, you know, we decided we, not to do it because regardless of if, you know, of what the genetic test shared, we decided that, you know, we would still love and care for this child regardless. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, yeah, and and uh, you know, at the end of it, Oliver was not near, and so I don't. Yeah, that was just kind of. I remember that being kind of like, okay, like that's difficult of a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, the other part with Oliver too was the labor and delivery was really long. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in labor for twenty three hours, um, mm -hmm. actively pushing for over three, um. I lost um, capacity to like the feeling on my uh, left side of my body was gone. Um, I had to actually get like a whole neural scan and everything before they even let me leave the hospital at that point. Um, but, you know, I remember Oliver was 10 days late. Um, and so he had a team of six people that came in to the labor and delivery room um, to take care of him. And while they were taking care of him, I was hemorrhaging. Um, and, um, but, you know, obviously it, it, it ended up being okay. Um, but yeah, the, it was a really difficult. But then you forget mm -hmm. in a weird way. And then I had my second. It um and and Thea's pregnant, you know, when I was pregnant with Thea too, um, I was still throwing up, but labor and delivery was so quick and it wasn't as difficult. Um, so every child is a little bit different, but um it I rem you know, I remember going through all of it and feeling very much like one, I felt like I had no control over my own body. Mm. Um which was really weird for me to kind of come to terms with. Um, and two, that like, um, how do I phrase this? Like my body was not mine alone anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was something that was, that no one really told me about that like the psychological, mental kind of like exercises that you have to go through with pregnancy. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. Did you feel, so the first of you feeling like you had no control over your body, was that because of the process of pregnancy itself? Or was that in like the labor and delivery space? Like why do you, why was that? Um, both. I, both, because um, I remember, you know, when I was pregnant and I was really nauseous um, and I tried everything. And I, you know, I remember, I think I probably drank every type of ginger ale, ginger beer out there. Telling me <laughs> it's a universal medicine. Ginger ale is a universal medicine. Okay. Yeah. It, like to this day, if I smell certain types of ginger ale or ginger beer, it takes me right back. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I remember like the first thing I would do when I woke up was like, like, you know, like 
eat crackers, like saltine crackers, because I heard that that helps with like nausea throughout the day. Yeah. I didn't. I had people, you know, sweet ladies at church would give me these like bracelets with like um, pressure points that you like dial it in and it's supposed to kind of hold it and it's supposed to help you with your nausea. Didn't really help. I mean, nothing was helping me feel any, like, it, like I just couldn't, I had to sit with it for 16 weeks, you know? And then even with, you know, delivery and labor, I mean, you're just basically on a ride and there's no control of when you want to get off. <laughs> you know like when it starts it starts and you just have to be you just you know at the hands of the doctors nurses and whoever else is there for you yeah what do you wish you would have known or uh, someone would have told you in preparation for that or just motherhood I think uh, guilt mm. would be part of the journey, regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, after they were born, um, I had a really difficult time with breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, we had like a, a a breastfeeding consultant person help. Um, I just wasn't making enough to feed Oliver and, you know, we had to supplement. And I remember feeling like I failed, Mm. you know, that as a mom that I was supposed to provide and I couldn't. Um, So that was really difficult, especially because there's so much out there about how like breastfeeding is so natural and and it should be natural and we should be able to make enough. Um, I wasn't. And that, yeah, I don't think people ever told me what that feels like. Everyone kept on really pushing, like, oh, breastfeeding, try to do it as long as you can. Um, but, you know, that gets the best thing. And, yeah, I think the guilt part of it um, was was something that I, I didn't expect. Guilt for just, like, me and my kind of shame of, like, not being able to provide and guilt that I felt for my child that I couldn't provide. Um, yeah, yeah. What would you say to uh, someone else experiencing that same thing? What would you tell them? I think I would say that what you are able to provide is enough Mm. and that there are other options out there. That way you you are providing everything for your child in the way that you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. That's good, that's good. Okay, and so by this time, we would have Mm -hmm. observed the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, And so for this time of waiting for the arrival of Christ, but I'd like us to focus on, you know, we talk about Jesus and, you know, we love Jesus. Okay. I love the Lord. (laughs) I love the Lord. Um, But this is also Mary's story, her entrance into motherhood. Um, And so for this first Sunday in Advent, what is your hope for this landscape of maternal health? I think my hope is that there will be 
a time soon where there'll be better access to better whole maternal health. Um, you know, especially, you know, when we, especially tied to letters to my daughters, you know, black maternal health and reproductive assets, you know, like I was, you know, thinking like in my life right now, I have people that are on their 11th cycle of IVF. Mm -hmm. Um, I have another friend right now that is waiting, um, to see if that the, if that the one embryo that survived the seven days of viability, um, and now has to go for genetic testing is going to be okay Mm. to be implanted. And then I have another friend that, you know, had an abortion this year and none of their journey at all was easy or affordable for that matter. Um, and so, you know, when I think about this kind of maternal health in this country, my hope is that, you know, the work that you're doing, the work that, you know, others are doing right now, that we will get eventually to a place where it will not be so hard, um, that all of these difficult decisions and conversations that people are having, that it's not compounded by the fact that it's so difficult to get the help that people need. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, access, and to have that access be quality access to care, comprehensive quality access to care. And affordable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I'm really grateful just for meaningful conversation and Uh, the reflection and the story that Amy provided. Um, We'll continue on with the conversation next week. Uh, But I thought since we are in this season of Advent that it would be fitting to close each of our episodes uh, with a uh, virtual candle lighting of our own. Um, And so I'm grateful for the work of Discipleship Ministries of the UMC. Um, I uh, would like to read uh, a candle lighting liturgy uh, that they produced. So as we prepare to light our virtual Advent candle, would you hear these words? In the days of exile and uncertainty, The prophet Isaiah cried out, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains trembled before you. In the midst of our own encounters with uncertainty and upheaval and our longing for deliverance, Jesus calls to us, therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. We wait as people surprised again and again by God who shakes us out of our complacency and wakes us up to the work of the kingdom around us. And we light this virtual candle as a sign of our shocking hope. May we stay awake to God's activity in the world as we wait in expectation that even now God is with us, working to restore us 
to the fullness of life with God and one another. Amen. You all, thank you so much for taking the time out for this weekly devotion of Letters to My Daughters. As always, please feel free to reach out to me via email with any questions or just general experiences from the study that you may have. I can be reached via email at chedwards, that's C-H-E-D-W-A-R-D-S, at umcjustice.org. Until next time, go in grace, go in peace. 